One of the joys of having, being a parent of young kids is that you get to revisit a lot of Disney animated movies. Every parent here knows the draw to go back and watch all these movies, and there are plenty of shows too. Lots of great things. PJ Masks, Paw Patrol, all happens at our house excessively. Um, but I, uh, one of the movies that, for a while, my, what happens with my kids is that they get on a kick of watching things over and over again. To excess is the good word. Do we really need to watch that movie again? Do we really need to watch the show again? And it's been a little bit since it's been the case, but for a while, my parents were, my kids were obsessed with, 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 with Lion King, which I remember watching it when I was younger too, Lion King, the animated, the, the OG Lion King. And one of the fascinating things I think that happens in the story, and as an adult, you receive and experience the story, and you think, wow, this there's all these different nuances to the story that I just was going right over my head. Um, but if you remember The Lion King, you might have to dip back in your brain, which is fine. You know, the, One of the things that happens is Mufasa dies. He's killed. And Simba completely blames himself. Scar, the, the big scary uncle, comes up to him and he basically says, uh, run away and never come back again. He scares him. And so what does young little Simba Lion Cub do? He runs away. He goes off to the jungle. He, he actually escapes. It's escapism if you actually kind of look at it. He's running away from who he is, his identity. I love Hakuna Matata. I love it. Don't get me wrong. But it also is completely escapism. To run away from what you're called to do, who you're called to be, and it's fun. I, I love it. Ruth always likes to chime in, and she like, tries to clear all the verses when Simba chimes in when he's older with the solo. She wants to be the one with the solo. Don't take the solo away from her. Um, but he's running away from who he's meant to be. And I have these, like, the James Earl Jones voice in my mind. I remember, remember who you are. Like, that's, that's part of the movie, this whole point. Remember who you are. And one of the other lines that really kind of resonates with me still as an adult is what also says the past hurts. You can either run away from the past or learn from it. First John is a book that is really a letter, and it is a letter from a pastor who's trying to write to his brothers and sisters. He's writing to the church. He loves them, and he knows they're dealing with panic. He knows they're dealing with fear. They're probably trying to escape in some ways from who they're meant to be in this day and age, all the way back then. And I just think how much that connects with us. How we, a lot of times, can easily become scared, worried, and run away from our true call of who we are meant to be as people of God, brothers and sisters following Jesus. We are meant to follow him. But we get confused and scared. And I think that's why First John in this letter is basically saying, remember who you are. The first few verses before the passage I read, which was connected to the call to worship I gave us this morning, were all connected to this idea of encouragement. It's encouragement that... John is trying to say, your sins have been forgiven. God has already poured out his love on all of us, on all of you. And I have given you the power to overcome the evil one. That's what he tells them. Remember the word of God that lives in you because this is what you need. 
He's trying to encourage them that you have what you need to move forward. And then what we just heard is after the encouragement is a warning. Because in this community that received this letter, he knows that people are stepping away from the fellowship. They're acting like they don't need Jesus. They're acting like they can, they can just do their own faith based on their own intellect and pride. And they don't need to be in fellowship with other believers. And there is this escapism happening, running away from the true call of the people of God in this letter. And so one of the things that I thought, how do I explain these, two, this, these verses here, is that I think John is highlighting some of the reasons for why the people have left, or why there's so much confusion, so much worry and concern. And so what I want to do is to reflect on three reasons I see in this passage. The three reasons for why John sees this happening, and how he would see the church respond to them, and how we as the church can respond to them too. So that's our journey this morning, looking at these reasons and asking, how do we respond? Are you with me? So I'm going to start back in 2.15. And the first verse, the first thing that John points to is this. When you read the first verse, you see it. It's very plain. It reads off the page. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. Do not love the world or anything in the world. I, I, do I love the world? I can think of all these things that I love. I, I, I like comfortable food, snacks way too late in the night. I like people. I love being with people and the joy and friendships. I like having fun. Think of the best vacation that you've been able to have, hopefully, over the past year. Maybe you probably can think more of the vacations you had to cancel. But... You know, that's, that, this is part of what we enjoy. There are things in life we enjoy, and they are intended to be good things. But there are things that we end up loving too much. There are things that we end up loving so much in the world, and they do something in our hearts. You know, one of the ways to figure out if something is 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 it, is it permissible or is it, poss- is, is it worthwhile? Is it good? Is this, as you notice it, look at what happens in your heart as you enjoy something. Does it bring about fruit? Does it bring about love, joy, peace, and patience? Does it draw you into selfishness? Does it draw you into pride? What happens in your heart when you give yourself over to things? What he names as part of what love of the world is, is, you know, not words we really like to use every day, lust for the flesh. I, that's not something I normally say in a week. I don't think any of us say that. Lust for the flesh. That's what it says. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes from the, not from the Father, but from the world. So loving world means being given over to what this lust is. And there's three things he names. I'm going to explain them. Lust of the flesh, it's a more general category. Desiring the things of the flesh. These are the things that bring us self-gratification, self-satisfaction. It's a general category. Then lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes. What is that? Well, that's, that are the, the lust that's activated when we see the things that we want and we gravitate towards it. I'm gravitating for it. I've seen it. I want it. I want it now. That. That's the eyes. That's what's happening in, through, in the heart. And then the last thing he names is the pride of life, which it, what it's speaking to, if you look at how he uses it later in the book, is it's speaking to the pride that comes from material possessions. So I have all the things I could possibly need 
I have like, I have my great house. I have my great setup. I have my great vacation spots, all this. I've got everything that I possibly need. I don't need anything more. I'm good. That's a little bit of what he speaks to. He's saying all these things can draw us away from the Father and into the world. They absolutely can. And so those lusts, those desires, they directly oppose what God wants for us. It's not that they're necessarily bad or good, but when you see what happens in our hearts, especially when we go deep and give ourselves over to them, we can get lost in seeking pleasure in the world through these desires. And so what John's saying is that people have left this, the church, the fellowship of God, because they have been caught up in love for the world. These desires, they might please us for a moment, but what they leave is not pleasure. They leave pain. They leave emptiness. They leave shame. I think of my boy Simba. They leave shame. They leave hurt. When we give ourselves to the pleasures and they disappoint us, or they are not enough for us, all, we're, all we are left with is wanting more. Which is why he says that the love of the Father is not in him. And the last verse he says in verse 17 about this idea is the world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives in them. So there's something connected to doing the will of God that takes us out of love of the world. And so as a wrap-up point for this section, I would just say this. If you're wondering how to avoid the love of the world, it's about loving who God is and what he's doing in the world. Loving the way in which God's mercy and gospel does set us free. It offers the better life for all the people that we care about most. For our neighbor, for our family, we want so desperately for them to experience the love of God, just as I would desire for each of you to experience the love of God. Because that is what bears fruit. That is what brings healing. And we should pursue nothing else. So doing the will of God is participating with that. It is in our own hearts as individuals, families, friends, and the community saying yes to Jesus. That's how we avoid loving God and not Loving, avoid loving the world and not loving God. Second point. Now we're going to talk about antichrists. So second point here. So we have love of the world, and then he names different things about both time and antichrist. So I need to read this, and then I will explain what it is, because it does bring up some questions. Um, Dear children, this is the last hour. As you have heard that the, last, that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So what he's saying is that the second point, so the first one was about loving the world. This one is about the people of God being deceived because of this last hour and antichrists. So what I mean by this is is there's two things. I need to explain the time. He says the last hour, which is in reference to this period of time after Christ arriving and in between him coming again. That Christ will come again. After he ascended in heaven, he promised he would return again. And that will initiate this end of the age of time. Well, John sees us in these last days. He sees the church he serves in these last days. He's basically talking about the fact that since Jesus has ascended, we've been given this posture of waiting. We are bringing about the kingdom where we are. That's why we initiate this. We talk about having impact in our community and the world because we want to bring the good news. We're called to do it. And we do it, and we will do it until the end of the age, until Christ returns. And so, that what what that means? That last hour is the last hour is here. It's a time of trial, of preparation for all of us who follow Jesus. 
We don't know when it will be. Jesus himself says that, but about the day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. But while we wait, we make sure we wait well. We make sure we wait anticipating the kingdom that God will bring and that we accept what happens now as preparing us for that time. You know, what we do now, how we live in this season, as challenging and complicated as this season is, this time is preparing us to be with the Lord. Our hearts are being prepared to be with God. So how we adapt, reflect on his love and the gospel in a community, it does prepare us to be with Jesus. We do this together. The thing I also need to talk about is Antichrist. So we're in the last hour, as he says, but he says Antichrist. He says that the Antichrist is coming, and they have come. Is coming, have come. And you can look at different passages in 2 Thessalonians. You can look at passages that Jesus talks about the Antichrist or false teachers, and even in Revelation. And what the Bible tells us about Antichrist, there are a few things. So I'm going to summarize a little bit. The Bible tells us that the Antichrist is a coming figure, He also tells us, the Bible makes a distinction between the Antichrist figure and then also that there will be lots of lesser Antichrists that come along, lots of Antichrist figures that come along. And the function of all these, whether it's the one Antichrist the Bible talks about or the many, they function to deceive the people of Jesus. They function to deceive us, to mislead us, to lead us astray. Jesus himself warns against false prophets and false messiahs, which if you think of Messiah, Messiah is Hebrew for the anointed one. But Matthew 24 says this, At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do do not believe it. For the false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, even God's family. So it's not, and what's interesting about what's happening in 1 John as he mentions this here is other places in the Bible talk about the Antichrist coming outside of the community, a voice kind of speaking over the church saying, I'm trying to deceive you and tear you away. But 1 John is one of the unique places in the Bible that actually talks about that happening in the church, that something was happening among the believers where they were being misled. And, And part of it all stems from a belief about who Jesus is. Like, 1 John doesn't, is not going to give you a full argument of everything that's going on about why people left the church. But it is about, is Jesus the Son of God? Is he the word of life? And they experienced this anti, the Antichrist in their church because people were challenging that faith. It later in the passage, explains exactly how John would have us see what it means to be an Antichrist And I'm going to read that for us. It's in verse 22, if you have your Bible open. Uh, 2.22. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, like I just said. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So it's just pointing to a belief about Jesus and saying, this is so essential to what it is to be the people of God. And people were challenging this. And, and because of that, people in the church and outside were confused. They're confused about who God is and who Jesus is. 
And there's this whole piece in these verse, which I find challenging to discern and process myself personally, where he talks about how people were leaving the community and saying that they don't belong, they didn't belong to us. It's one of the hardest parts for me to read this passage, if I'm going to be honest. Uh, 2.19, the verse right before where I read it says, they went out from us and they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. And I struggle with that, to be honest, because I, I, I think about the churches I've been a part of, and there is a lot of fluidity in church. Like, I look at the kingdom of God and the people of God, and I, and I, I you know, I realize that God is mysteriously working in people's hearts and drawing people to church and fellowship. And I think it's a real gift for us to be in clear standing. I, I'm a member of this church. I'm a part of that. But I, I certainly don't think God's limited by that. And in truth, like, as we step in life, I, I, I struggle to understand something like this because I really believe it's the wisdom and knowledge of God knowing the condition of people's hearts. I really don't feel like as a pastor, as your brother, know that. I don't. You know, it's about us all operating in good conscience and humility, serving the Lord resolutely. And, you know, some of this here, I, if I'm going to be honest, I struggle to understand. Um, but I wanted to share it and acknowledge that. I don't feel like I have to know the perfect answer. But when I read that passage, that's something I feel some tension with. What does God mean by that? The other thing um, I wanted to just acknowledge is that it's very easy to be misled. And I think of this personally. You think about the amount of spam calls you get. I, the spam calls, I mean, I, I, my phone number is probably younger than many of your phone numbers, and I still get all the spam calls. Or you think about all the Facebook messages of getting hacked on Facebook. All these things, like, to operate in this modern technolog technological world, you have to know a thing or two about the trickery that's happening. And that's overt. We all know the people that say, I've been hacked. Don't, don't listen to my Facebook. Don't, don't, don't look at my message. We know all that. But the trickery in, in the world, I think, is often even more subtle. It's more subtle to understand, how does this undermine what Jesus says about himself? How does this undermine this promise that Jesus is the word of life for all of us? We have to be discerning. And so, as John says, people have left because they've been deceived. We who want to follow and embrace the word of life, we must recognize this deception. How do we recognize this deception? Well, look at 24. As, as for you, see that you have heard from the beginning. What you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and the Father. And this is what he promised, eternal life. It is about remaining in what we've heard from the very beginning, which is his catch term to this witness to who Jesus was throughout all of creation, speaking to us in the here and now, and welcoming us to walk in relationship with God. And it is about embracing eternal life. This promise is not just the you know, odd so years of us being on the earth, but preparing us to enjoy eternity with our Lord when suffering is gone, pain gone. Those things get used as part of our experience and we lament them, we hurt in the midst of them. But he is anticipating us to be with him forever and eternity. That's what he desires for us and invites us into. 
The third thing, so the first thing was love for the world and how that can take us away from loving God. Second thing was being deceived by the things of the world that undermine who Jesus is. And the third thing has to do with this language of anointing. See, people have left, and it's, un, it's basically they've let go of their anointing they had in God. And it's interesting to think, what is this anointing he's talking about? I'm going to read verse 20 again. I had to kind of jounce around a little bit to get these points a little clearer, but I think it captures the whole passage. I'm reading from verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. So the people who embrace the word of life, who trust in Jesus, they have an anointing. If that's you, you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. So this anointing, I'm going to go to a few other places in the Bible to explain what this is. But oftentimes anointing is referred to what the Spirit is doing on the people of God. The anointing is a spirit working. So you might not feel like you've had an incredible spiritual experience, but if you've been walking with Jesus and you have sensed a softening of your heart and you proclaim Jesus as your Lord and you're walking in step in that journey, then that anointing is happening in your life. It's the spirit working upon your life. And this word anointing, just like 1 John uses it here, it's the same word Jesus uses of himself when he quotes Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me. It's referred to as the oil of gladness. And Paul refers to what God does upon him in 2 Corinthians. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. And set his seal of ownership upon us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit and guarantee for what is to come. That's 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. And so the spirit is the one doing the anointing. What is the anointing? It has everything to do with our status and relationship with the Holy One, that is Christ. And so for us to embrace and live in this anointing that God desires for us, it is inseparable from a belief and trust and relationship with Jesus as the Son of God. And this anointing teaches us, it gives us guidance and reflection and wisdom for how to discern what is true and not. Anointing allows us to not be led astray as people of God. We must lean into our anointing. Because what happened in this church is that people started exploring different ideas that would challenge the idea that they needed Jesus to die for themselves. That Jesus was not actually God. That, that was a big one. The idea that Jesus was not actually God. He had a lot of good things to say, but I have a lot of good things to say too. You know, like that, that, this is what's happened in the hearts of the people, and it happens every day in our, in our community too. We can so easily prioritize our own thoughts and desires and voice over the voice of the Son of God speaking to us. And so the call in this passage is to remain in our anointing, which is not to pursue another anointing. If anointing is an empowerment to live in the Spirit, people are seeking anointing to live in their own end, to their own purposes, according to their own pleasure. And what 1 John says at the end of this passage speaks plainly to this. 
I'm writing these things to you, verse 26, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you above all things, and that anointing is real and not counterfeit, just as it has been taught you, remain in him. One of the things that stands out to me, teach all things. Does that mean God's going to teach me how to change a tire? I don't think so. Teach all things, all you need to know about Christ. By the Spirit, he indwells in us. You don't have to be the most spiritual, charismatic person among us for me to say that's true for you. That God is dwelling in your life and enabling things to grow in you that would not be possible otherwise. And it's tempting for us to think, you know, am I, do I really have enough? Do I really have enough? And if you're questioning whether you are enough or you don't have enough, then you are exploring a way in which you're trying to, in your own way, seek to earn your salvation, seek to earn the grace that God has already given you. That I understand the gospel and it calls us to obedience and repentance, but it is a word of grace. And it's a word of freedom. And if we don't operate, if we operate in the sense that we have to do in order to become who Christ says we are, then we are not living out the gospel. The gospel freedom comes first with being a reality in which God has invited us into his presence and relationship. And what we do after that, it organically comes out. It grows. Our doing grows out of our being. So as I want to just reflect a little bit towards the end here, I want to understand how to apply this. Because I, I try to highlight three different elements that I think are really important. The idea of loving the world being drawn into the desires of the world, the idea of being deceived by false teaching, and then the idea of anointing and how sometimes we would prefer to have a different kind of anointing. <laughs> Instead of receiving the one that God's already given us, the one that comes through the Holy Spirit that enables us to be bold witnesses, bold witnesses in this world. And I just think of all the ways I've been tempted in my own spiritual journey. I can see all those. I've been enticed by the world of the things that could bring me pleasure. I have been tempted, and I've been deceived, not just about a Facebook post. I've been led astray exploring some thought pattern and trying to figure out, does this make sense or not? And then I look at the third option, and I think the same. As someone who desires to serve the church, I am tempted to seek authority beyond myself that is not in God. I think we all are, if we're going to be honest, because we're attracted and drawn to power. We're attracted and drawn to power and authority to remove all of our problems in our midst, as opposed to trusting. It is this humble trusting of God that he has us and he's with us. And so I look at how I'm tempted, and I know that we all probably share that experience in one way or the another, and it's to all those that we must cling to the truth that is Christ. It is about clinging to the fact that as complex as this world easily and quickly becomes, that Christ is enough for each of us. And that his love is the means by which we navigate with wisdom all things. And we must, through his love, recognize and remain in him. The word remain in this passage is probably familiar to you from John 15. It is abiding in the love of God. Abiding in the love of God. And I, and I know this past week has been really challenging for anyone who dares to read the, the news. 
you dare to read the news in the sense that there are just strong, wounded thoughts and perspectives and hurt. I, what I see when I go on is I see so much hurt. And I see a, a couple weeks ago, I talked about anger. And what I sense also among a lot of us is that we're, feel, we're feeling taken away from the love of God. And it's not necessarily about a side. I don't want you to hear me say anything about a side because that's not what I'm trying to do here. But however we advocate, however we love, however we serve, it should feel more and more like the love of God than anything else. That through the way we engage in the world and serve one another, it should be us recognizing and abiding in the love of God. That is our witness. And it is very easy, and I can speak to myself, it is very easy in my own life where I've realized that I've cared, I care too much about this. Why do I care too much about this? And I, what was good, and I can see the justice, I can see the importance of the good news in it, shifts in my heart, and then all of a sudden I'm realizing, wow, no, that's, I'm not recognizing and abiding in the love of God. I've gone beyond it. Something's happened here. And that's why it's important <laughs> for us to cling to the truth of the word of life, to recognize and remain in the love of God, which is for you and for the world around you, that we are called where we are for a reason and we are being prepared to be a loving witness to the world. And that does not mean silence, by the way. (laughs) It doesn't mean silence. We are called to act and speak, but we must recognize and abide in the love of God. I'm going to invite our worship team up to kind of leave us in response. One of the things as Jesus is being tested in the wilderness, you know, Satan comes to him and tempts him with all these different kinds of things. And one of Jesus' responses is this. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That is what we are invited to do. It's why he came for us. He died for us because we all start from a place of not just confusion, but downright darkness, (laughs) downright lostness. And at the same time, he sees us and he welcomes us. I don't think we all have to have the answers right now for how we respond to everything in our life. But if anything, I think we can take comfort that God, we're in good hands with God that we're in good hands with him. There's nothing that's going to separate us from walking in step in his light and truth. And that doesn't mean that there's not difficult things for us to do in the midst of that time. But we trust him in faith that what he desires for us over this next year, over the next decade, and through all the ages is best for us because it's preparing us to embrace and live eternal life with him. And one of the things I just want to say is that maybe you're not so clear about where you are with your journey in that. But you are welcome still. You're welcome with us. And if you want to join in that journey with Jesus, we want everything we can do to be part of that with you. (laughs) Because it is the most freeing thing you could possibly be a part of. It sees all, he sees all of your mistakes even more than you can bear to confess. And he welcomes you the same. He runs to you. So I invite us to just go to a time of prayer. I'm going to pray for us. And then the team will lead us in worship. Lord, I just want to thank you that we're in good hands with you. (laughs) That there is no better place that we could be but to be in your presence and your hands and trusting in you. And that you desire the absolute best things for us. The good life is the life you intend for us. 
But Lord, we know that the world is loud, that darkness strikes out, and it still has impact on our souls and our hearts. So Lord, I just pray that you would lead us to love you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to recognize what is not true, that your spirit would lead us. I pray, Lord, that we would not seek any other anointing, only the anointing by the spirit in Jesus, which is our walk with you, the protection that you give us as your believers. Lord, help us to cling to your truth and to even confess in our own hearts the things where we've been led astray, that we can be in good standing with you, that we can hold the tension of courage and compassion, we can hold the tension of boldness and humility, and we can do all those things for the glory of God and for our good. So I pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.